Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. All right, so we are starting off a new series called Wisdom Under Fire. No, okay. (laughs) Maybe you like the last series a lot. No, this is a a new series, um, and it focuses on the person of Daniel. We're going through the book of Daniel and seeing how he responds to worldly pressure and to conform, to assimilate into his culture, and chooses not to. Uh, and we're looking at that because <laughs> there's just this growing idea that this culture that we're a part of here in the United States is becoming more and more hostile towards Christianity. That for many generations, this has been um, this this great country that we've been a part of has been very positive towards Christianity. And then maybe over the last few generations, it's been a little bit more neutral, positive, some negative, but mostly neutral. And now we're moving towards a uh, a culture that seems a little bit more hostile towards Christianity. Of course, that's nothing compared to the culture that many other people experience around the world here today or in the past, and definitely not to what Daniel faced. But it's good to look at how they had or how they handled that certain situation, how Daniel navigated his situations and see how he responded so that we can learn from that and maybe handle the culture that we're going to be a part of. Um, what I wanted to say about this, because this first week is talking about kingdoms clashing and the idea of the worldly kingdom and the godly kingdom and them colliding and how they fight against each other and how we should respond to that and how we can retain our godly wisdom. And there's a couple things that I wanted to share. First of all, godly wisdom is always under fire from worldly wisdom. It always is. It's just always going to be that way. And the, because sin is present in our world, it, it happens either subtly or in your face. If you're in a culture that's positive towards Christianity, like there was 300 AD when Constantine uh, adopted Christianity as the Roman religion and, and things changed, there is this positive outlook on Christianity, things started to work within the church. They started to find corruption within inside the church. Uh, these people that had real strong faith, willing to die for what they believed, were suddenly surrounded by a bunch of people that believed just out of convenience or wanting to rise up the church for political power. And that's not even, uh, I mean, many of us have this experience uh, from our past generations. We have church baggage something that our churches in the past have done, whether that be uh, elitism or legalism or people using the church out of convenience or a desire to assert themselves and they look down on other people. Many of us have that kind of experience with church because, well, worldly wisdom infected the church with the godly wisdom within the church. And so whether it's out in your face, what's up, Evan? (laughs) Whether... The worldly wisdom was infecting the church subtly inside, or whether there's a culture that's against Christianity and and around the outside putting pressure, it's always there. It's going to be there. It always has been. It always will be. So I just want people to understand that, that as we move forward, it's not like God's becoming less prevalent in our life or that the godly wisdom is fading away. No, it's just changing its tact. The worldly wisdom is trying to become more obvious and assertive and against Christianity. And actually, I actually look forward to times like these. 
not because it's going to be easy, by no means, no, it's going to be horrible, as, you, as we can learn from Daniel. But when worldly wisdom starts to become more obvious, it becomes a lot easier to see how it's working. It's a lot harder when it's being subtle. How is worldly wisdom affecting or putting pressure on godly wisdom? Uh, it's a lot harder to tell. But in a culture that's hostile to Christianity, it's a lot easier to see, okay, yeah, that's clear that this isn't the right answer. The other thing I want to say, and this is really important, is that um, we are called to be set apart as Christians, not just in what we believe, but how we respond. If, if indeed we are moving to a culture that's more hostile to what we believe, it's important to be set apart, yes, in what we believe and what we say, what we think, but it's also extremely important that we respond differently. That if the world's yelling, Christians don't yell. If the world's being violent, Christians don't be violent. That we respond differently than what the world responds. And I know that there's just this tendency, especially when we get to this, there's, a, there's a, almost an eagerness in some people to be like, yeah, I'm ready to go fight for, for Jesus. But look how Jesus fought for himself. He fought for himself by dying for you. He fought for the people he loved by sacrificing himself. Jesus turned the other cheek. He didn't just say it. He did it. And we as Christians are supposed to follow that line. We're supposed to be set apart, not just in what we believe and what we say, but also how we live it out. How we say it is very important. We're going to see that in Daniel. But I I just want you to understand that if we are moving towards a culture that's hostile, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And there's going to be a temptation to fight back with anger and and yelling and other stuff that we might want to do, but don't. That's not how we are supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be set apart by having confidence in our God, turning the other cheek, continuing to love and show grace and mercy. It's really difficult to say, I love you in a really angry way, you know, while you're, you know, throwing throwing a few fists here and there. So don't do that. Respond or be set apart, not just in how you believe, but also how you respond. Today, um, I'm going to do things a little differently. Normally, at the end of each sermon, I give you some implications or questions to think about because I boil down what we've learned and give you something to walk away with. But uh, I really felt the Spirit leading me to say, don't do that. Don't. Don't boil it down, uh, partly because I couldn't come up with anything, um, but mostly because I really felt the Spirit's calling me to this, because as I was reading through this, working through this in Sermon Club and talking with people about it, I just realized how awesome this story is. And there were so many things that were just hitting me on a personal level, and I really feel like the Spirit wants to do that with all of you today. So as we're going to, I'm just going to work through this story. I'm going to point out some of the things that I like, that I, that I think are significant, give you some background information, but we're just going to work through the story. And I'm inviting the Holy Spirit and you guys to jump in with that and just respond and, and hear what the Spirit has to say to you on a personal level today. Uh, with that being said, we're going to pray. Uh, and I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit into this place to speak through me and, and to speak to me. Uh, but I also encourage you, if you have a personal re- relationship with Jesus, to ignore me and just speak to the Spirit yourself and say, speak to me today. All right? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity you've given me to preach. 
Uh, you know how much I, I love and I uh, just get so much out of this opportunity every time you give it to me. And I pray that you can help me uh, share this awesome person that existed and share his story well. And I pray that you can meet with us here, speak with me and speak through me and uh, to everyone else here. Holy Spirit, move in this place. And uh, we give this time over to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so before we start reading, I wanted to give you some background info. Uh, first of all, Daniel's one of the prophets. Uh, he has a unique place where he's one of a few prophets that's actually during the exile. So God's people were um, disobedient many times. As we, if you've read the Bible, you know that God's people, the Israelites, are disobedient people. Uh, we haven't changed too much, but hopefully uh, we can learn from them a little bit. But God's people continued to disobey, continued to turn to other gods. And so God would send prophets saying, hey, if you don't change, if you don't stop, I'm going to have you overtaken by other people and exiled away from the land that I, I promised you. I promised it to you. I gave it to you. Your job was to honor me and you chose not to. So now it's going to be taken away from you and you're going to be taken away from it. So we call this the exile, and with the kingdom splitting, uh, the, is- the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, was exiled first, uh, and then later on, the nation of Judah was also exiled. Uh, this, Daniel, is from the nation of Judah, and so his story takes place during the exile, uh, just after they exiled um, Judah. And this graphic, what it's showing is showing all the prophets and how they existed in the first group. I don't know if you can read it, but it says pre-exile prophets. This is the first group of people that God sent to tell the people, hey, turn back, return to me, have relationship with me, honor me, do what I command you to do, and, and I'll stop, I'll relent, I'll, I'll, I'll keep you together, you will be my people. But if you don't, I'm going to exile you. You're going to be taken away from your, the land that I promised you. And so all these people were sent. Um, and then the second group, th- those are the people that came during the exile, and the last group is after the exile. So uh, what I really, why I really wanted to show this is just because I think, especially as we, if we pick up a story right here, we take up Daniel and we start reading right in the beginning and see how these people are exiled. We're like, wow, this is not a very good God. He just let their people be exiled. But... He gave them lots of warning. He sent lots of people, most of whom ended up dying for what they were preaching and what they were saying. He sent them tons of people. This story becomes even more relevant when Jesus later uses a parable to explain what God's been doing. That God is this master that keeps sending his servants to relay a message, and the people that are supposed to receive it are killing them. They kill the messenger after messenger until finally the master has no one left but his own son and says, okay, I'll send you. And they kill him too. And that's supposed to be all these prophets that God sends to tell his people to turn back, warning them, showing mercy. He cares for them. He wants to have relationship with them, but they, they don't listen. So that's why the exile happened. And eventually he sends his own son, Jesus. Um, so that's what's going on there. Uh, now let's get into Daniel himself. He's probably a teenager at this time. Uh, he's probably raised with this hatred of Nebuchadnezzar. That's the king of Babylon. Uh, and he's probably got this, like, just grown up thinking of him as the ultimate evil. This is the most wicked man ever because he's killing, he's, he's fighting us, he's winning wars, and he's coming to defeat us. And the beginning of the book starts with King Nebuchadnezzar taking over Jerusalem. 
He besieges it, which means he surrounds it, waits for them to either surrender or starve, and then carts off all the people that he wants to take with him away from Jerusalem towards Babylon. So this is, this is the start of this, this uh, book. Daniel is a teenager that's grown up to hate this man. He's, an army is besieged. He's probably got all this fear. They, they eventually take over. He's probably lost loved ones. And then they take him away because he fit the criteria of the type of people that they wanted to keep, uh, they wanted to take with them. So they take him away from the land that he's known all his life, away from his culture, away from his family, away from his language, away from everything, his God that he served and loved. They take him away from the temple. They take away everything. And then they put him into the, they charge him to be part of the king's service, which usually typically meant if you were going to be inside the king's service, inside the king's palace, they wanted to castrate you. So he was probably castrated, which means that the dreams of his future life, his family line, the purpose that he had all growing up, everyone told him, this is, this is what you're supposed to be, be fruitful and, and have a family and raise them well and show them the, the, to honor God. All that's taken away. That's how this story begins. This is where Daniel is in the beginning of this story. He's been carted off to Babylon. He's been chosen because he fits the criteria, put into service of the king that he's grown up to hate, castrated and removed from everything he's known and loved. Well, let's see how he responds. Uh, this, is the, this is the criteria that they were looking for in verse 4 um, of chapter 1. It says that they were looking for young men without any physical defect, handsome, you got to look good, Showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature to the Babylonians. What do you guys think? You think I'd fit this? Yeah, there we go. Thanks, Tyler. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they were looking for these people. And, and I, I really like the NASB translation of what they were looking for. Use... Youths, so young people, in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability to, for serving in the king's court. So they were looking for these intelligent men, but not just intelligent, they were looking for wise men. And um, I thought it was important to define wisdom, especially since our entire series is about wisdom. So um, this is the, the definition for wisdom. The quality of discerning what is true, what is ethically right, and what should be done in different situations. So this is what the type of people they were looking for. They were looking for people that were wise, that knew how to tell what was true, what was ethically right, and what should be done in different situations. And that doesn't necessarily seem, I know when you, when you hear wisdom, it doesn't necessarily seem like this awesome thing, but let me put it this way. If you, for the rest of your life, if I could grant you an ability for every decision you ever have to make from here going forward, that you will know what the right answer is. You will know what to choose. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to make a pro and con list. You just know exactly what the right answer is. Should we go to this place or this place for lunch today? I know. That's, that's, a, that's a great ability, right? So I'm, I'm getting married on Friday. Yeah. yeah, that was good. Yeah, you guys did much better in first service. They were like, oh, finally. Anyway, but I am, uh, and I'm really excited, but we've been planning this wedding, and there's a lot of decisions, and my wife's probably going to ro- roll her eyes uh, because I haven't made nearly as many decisions as she has, but still, 
There's a lot of them. Did you guys know weddings are supposed to have a color? What? All the girls. Yeah, of course. Anyway, you're supposed to have a color. You're supposed to decide these, this, that, or the other thing. And there's a lot of decisions. It would have been so nice just to be able to know without having to like decide or question or, I don't know, look through a whole list of options. It would have been nice just to be like, no, that's the one. That's the one. That's the one. That's what wisdom gives people. Especially when we're talking about serious life decisions that are, are super important. The ones that probably give us a lot of constipation about. They know. Like, these people that they're looking for, they know. They know the right thing. So, uh, that's what they're looking for. And this guy, the king, the king's high official, his name's Ashpenaz. That's a cool name. If you're looking for baby names, Ashpenaz. Throw that on out there. Uh, he's, looking for, he's looking for these people, and his job is to train them and help them become Babylonians. Because the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, knows that it's not good enough just to get these people, these wise men, to come and be a part of their kingdom. He needs them to become part of the system. He needs them to be indoctrinated, which is a difficult thing to do because you just conquered their nation, their homeland, exiled them, castrated them, and now your job is to make them want to be loyal to you? Very difficult thing to do, but it takes three years, typically, that's what they give them, three years to learn the Babylonian culture and to help them become Babylonian people. Um, but they're looking for wise people, and they, they single out Daniel and his friends. You probably know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their Babylonian name. Their Hebrew name was Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, and so they're called into service. Uh, and one of the first things that Ashpenaz says to them, this is one of the first things you're going to need to do, you get to eat the king's food. So this is one of those small, subtle ways that they're trying to indoctrinate them into the Babylonian culture. You get to eat the best food in all the land. Doesn't sound so bad, right? Okay, yeah. You did all this stuff to me, but at least I get steak every night. That's pretty nice. Steak and wine. That's not so bad. So he's, that's what they give them. And, and Daniel has a problem with this. And a lot of people think it's because... Uh, of the meat. Now, we, we know in chapter 10, Daniel makes an allusion to the fact that he does normally eat meat, but in this case, he's choosing to refuse. He says, no, I'm not going to eat meat, and I'm not going to drink the wine. Why? Well, because he knows that that wine and that meat has been sacrificed to the idols and the gods of the Babylonians. If it's on the king's table, it's been sacrificed to their gods first, prayed over by their god, or you know, by their people for their God and serve to the king. And then what's left over is serve to the, the wise men of Babylon. And so Daniel knows that that's not his God. That's not, that's not what he should be eating. If, if it's been sacrificed to honor other gods, he doesn't want to eat it. So he, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decide, no, we're not going to eat that. Give us vegetables. Give us stuff that hasn't been sacrificed to your God. And we will eat that. Well, uh, verse 8 says this resolution that Daniel made. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am, af I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would have my head because of you. So it says Daniel resolved that he and his friends, they decided not to do it. We've resolved. I like the way that um, the NASB says it. It says that Daniel made up his mind 
And the KJV going way back says Daniel purposed in his heart. I like combining all of these that Daniel decided in all of his being, no, I'm not going to do it. I just want to point out how subtle this is. It, it seems so simple. He's been through enough. He's been through enough, first of all, to just question whether or not he should honor God anymore. I don't know about you, but it doesn't take very much for me to get to that place where I'm like, do you even love me? You know, really? Like, it's just like I missed a red, I got a red light instead of a green light. Really? It doesn't take very much. You think about all that Daniel's gone through, I think all of us in this room would be like, yeah, dude, maybe God doesn't love you. <laughs> like, I know he says it, but uh, your life doesn't really reflect it. So it's, it's enough for, uh, for Daniel just to question in and of itself. But besides all, aside from all of that, Daniel decides, in spite, that he's going to honor God still. He's going to respect his God. And he's making this choice. It's a choice. I want to point that out too. It's a choice to honor his God, to trust in his God's provision over the king's provision, to trust in honoring God over maybe, you know, losing his life. He's, he's making this choice and he's, he's setting a tone for the rest of his life. As we work through the story, you're going to see that this comes back up and up over and over again, this decision to choose God, to, to choose to honor him or maybe die. But he's choosing to honor God. And uh, one of the things that I notice is that <laughs> it's very subtle. It's a small thing. I don't know about you, but someone throws a steak down in front of me, I'm going to eat it. I just, I am. I'm not going to think about the implications of it. I'm just going to be like, nice. Is it, is it rare? Good. That's exactly what I want. Yeah. But it's a very subtle thing, a very small thing. And that's usually how evil works and operates. It doesn't come at you with a very tough decision later on that seems obvious. Usually it's a subtle thing. Like I said, wisdom's always under fire. Godly wisdom's always under fire from worldly wisdom. So we see this in a very subtle, small way. He's, he's presented with an option that seems insignificant, inconsequential. Just eat the meat. Drink the wine. No problem. You've been through enough. You deserve this. But he says, no, that doesn't honor my God. So aside from the fact that he should probably be questioning whether or not God loves him, he chooses to continue to believe that, chooses to continue to honor God, and recognizes that here in this moment, even though it's small and subtle, here's an opportunity to trust his God over trusting this culture, this new way of living. He says, no, I have made up my mind. I've purposed in my heart not to do this. And that sets up the rest of the way. And I want to point out also the, the difference between uh, the king's official, Ashpenaz, and Daniel. Daniel seems calm collected. When I read stories like this, I often think maybe, maybe they just didn't write it down. Daniel, might, he was probably the one writing this or inscribing this in some way, shape, or form. Maybe he was just like, yeah, that was totally calm. Everything was fine, even though he was probably sweating, you know, and that's what I normally think. But as I was reading through this, I really felt like Daniel was actually pretty confident. I mean, didn't feel like he had much else to lose anyway, but just has this confidence in God. Like, I, I'm calm because I know that my God's going to do whatever my God's going to do, and I trust him in that. So he calmly responds, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do what the king says. But Ashpenaz is freaking out. He's like, what? Listen, if you don't eat the meat, you're not going to look good. You're going to be weak, and you're going to pale in comparison to everyone else, and I can't have that. The king's going to kill me because of you. And what happens right after this is, 
Daniel says to him calmly again and politely, please give me an opportunity. Test me. Test us, me and my friends. Let us eat the food we want to eat. Let us try it out. And if we look better, after a certain amount of time, if we look better, then you can, you can trust us, that my God is right. Like, give me an opportunity to show that I believe in my God, and give me an opportunity to show you that he, he is the answer. He's, he's right. Using that wisdom, knowing what's true. Daniel asked politely. Remember, it's not just about how, it's not about what you believe. It's about how you respond. He asks politely and calmly, please give me an opportunity. And so he does. Ashpenaz agrees and, and allows them. And then he finds out that they look even better than everyone else. So all the wise men now get their meat taken away, their meat and wine, and they're just forced to eat vegetables and drink water. That's it. That's what they did. And it worked out. I, I, I don't know about you, but if you're one of the other guys in that room, you're like, oh, you you're the ones that got us our meat taken away. Thanks, man. Like now we have to eat vegetables all the time. I would have been pretty mad at them. Uh, but that's what ends up working out. God comes through for them and, and they're shown to be, I love it. It says later on that they're 10 times wiser than everybody else. I don't know how you quantify that, but they're 10 times wiser than everybody else. Now we're going to pick up the story and we're going to read through it. Uh, how, uh, this continues to affect his life, and we're seeing one more, uh, another, all throughout this, the book, you'll see more opportunities, but here's another chance for Daniel to show that he has made up his mind about this. So in chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. So this is the problem. King Nebuchadnezzar has dreams, and in this culture, dreams mean something. They think that if I'm continually having the same dream, and if it's vivid and I remember it, then it means something. So they respond to it. Um, Our culture today doesn't really do much of that, and I often think it's not because we're not having dreams, it's because we just don't give them any credit. We don't think that God speaks to them very much anymore. But in this culture, it was very common. And so he summons all his wise people, the people that he's collected from all the nations all over the place, and says, hey, what does my dream mean? And they say, well, tell us. Verse 4, that's what they say. Tell us. Tell us what your dream is, and we'll tell you what it means. But the king responds in verse 5. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces, your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards great and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. High risk, high reward, right? You know, like you can tell me the dream, guess what the dream was. And I really want to know if someone actually tried, you know, just like, oh, (laughs) but guess what the dream was. Tell me what the dream was and then interpret it. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you, destroy your house. If you do, I'll honor you. You'll be really well honored in this kingdom and I'll, I'll set you up. But the, everyone else is like, all the astrologers like, listen, just tell us the dream. We'll, we'll tell you what it means. But in verse 8, king, the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. 
You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So, king's not happy. And it's kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a shrewd decision. It makes sense, because he knows as a king, he's powerful. If he tells them the dream, they'll just tell him what he wants to hear. Whoever has the most nice thing to say about him and the most positive interpretation, he's going to be like, all right, that's the one. That's the one I want to hear. But the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he's a very interesting character in the story. As we go through it and you, you hear more about this man, it's, it's very intriguing. Because on one end, he looks very w- evil and wicked. But as the story progresses, you kind of see him become an almost uh, God-fearer. He recognizes God and even submits himself to God. So he's an interesting person uh, in this story. But in this moment, he's really mad, uh, and he's being very wise, knowing that I want to know the truth. He's not looking for an answer. He's not looking for the most favorable answer. He's looking for the right answer. And so that's why he's saying, I don't want, I don't want to just hear what I want to hear. I want to hear the truth. So I'm only going to trust the person that can actually tell me what the dream was, even though they didn't hear it. And because he's mad and they, they can't answer and they say, Oh, no one's ever done this. You're no king has ever done this before. Um, he gets mad and orders them all to be put to death. But in verse 14, when Arioch, the commander of the King's guard had gone out to put to death, the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Again, not, how he, not just what he believes or just what he has to say, but how he says it. He asked the king's official officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So he's already made his mind up, right? He's already resolved. He's already purposed in his heart, made this choice that he's not going to bow down to this king. He's not going to assimilate into Babylon culture. culture. He's not going to become one of these people. He's going to continue to honor his God. He's going to continue to trust in his God. Even though it really feels like his God wasn't there for him, he's going to keep believing in his God. So he keeps making those decisions. And here's another opportunity where he's presented with a chance to come in and say something, do something, or to just fall down on his knees and be like, God, you are terrible. How dare you? All these things all led up to just me dying because some king was throwing a fit about a dream? That's not how Daniel responds. Calmly, with confidence, says, give me a day. Give me a day. I'm not asking for a day because I'm trying to buy time and survive or get out of here. I'm asking for a day because I really believe in my God. And here's an opportunity for me to show him off to the rest of the world and to this king and say, okay, here's an opportunity to show you that my God's right, my God's true. He did it before. 
with the vegetables. That worked out. And now he's going to try to do it again with this dream and say, God, give me a day. And then he goes back with his friends. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah gathers them all together and says, let's pray to our God. I, how do you, at this point, turn to God? I, I know confidently, I've been raised with this notion and I know it to be true that God is powerful. I've seen it happen all the time. I know God can do things. I see it in my life. I see it all around me. I see it in, in all of nature. I see it in just my body, like just seeing how powerful and amazing God is. It sounded kind of arrogant to say that right after my body, you know. But you know what I mean. God is powerful and we all know it. We've seen it. I'm sure everybody here has been witness to it at some point that God's powerful. We know that. But at this point, this is where I'm like, God, are, are you good? And it, if you are good, does that good apply to me? It's, I can see that you're good to other people, but right now it's hard to see that you're going to be good to me. And that's, that's the part that I have hard time, a hard time trusting God. I don't know about you, but this is where I struggle. It's not that I don't trust God to have the power to change things or do things, but that I don't know that that's always going to be the way that I want it to be. And that's what I regard as good. That's where my trust lacks. I, we are getting married uh, on Friday, and uh, my in-laws, my soon-to-be in-laws, uh, were coming here. They're, they're here, by the way. So end of the story is less tense. They're here. Um, but I was, uh, one of the things that was really tense about this whole thing is that they're coming from Brazil, and there was a law passed that says no one can come from Brazil to our country. You have to go somewhere else for at least two weeks before you can come here. So we, we did this before with Isa, my soon-to-be wife. She, she had to go to Costa Rica for a couple weeks. Um, my sister, fortunately, knows Costa Rica really well because she lived there. Uh, and so she went down there, met her, and hung out with her for two weeks before she came up here. And so we know that this worked and it happened before, but it's still really tense because, you know, we really want them to be at our wedding. It seems fair that, they, that Isa gets walked down the aisle by her parents. And so we really wanted them. It's, it's hugely important that they come. But it's also tense. It was really intense. It's scary. They have to get a negative COVID test in Costa Rica, which, you know, sometimes you get false positives. You know, you never know. And so there's a bit of fear there. And that's what we had Wednesday. And they got the negative test. And we're like, sweet. And then uh, now they just got to get through immigration, which should be relatively simple because we followed all the rules. But sometimes they can just send people home. And then on Friday, they were coming through, and they were in L.A. and LAX, and uh, then we could, didn't hear from them from, for about three hours. We weren't hearing from them, because they had been taken aside and held in immigration for a while. So there's this tense moment where I'm trying to be, you know, I'm trying to encourage Jesus and be like, everything's going to be okay, but inside I'm like, God, what the heck? <laughs> I really feel like I was doing what you wanted me to do. I feel like everything's worked out the way you wanted it to work out, that everything has just kind of fallen in line so that I could meet Isa, that we could get married, and it all works out. But this is super important. They, ha- they got to make it through immigration. They got to get here. So God, what are you doing? And this is where that trust comes in. It's like, I, I know God's a good God. I know he's a powerful God, but I don't know that that applies to this situation right now. The truth is I should trust God. And I know this. And I, the unfortunate thing about being a preacher is that you preach to yourself all the time. But I know the answer. I know that I should just, you know, even if it doesn't work out the way I want it to, it's still going to work out the way God wants it to, and I should trust in that. And here's the thing. I've had a very good life. 
very good life. God's been very good to me. And I've seen time and time again that even when things don't work out the way I want them to, they work out better. Always. Without, without fail. So I should be able to just be like, you know what, God, I totally trust you. It's going to be fine. And part of me does. I give, give myself a little credit. I, I do a little bit, but there's still a huge part of me that's like, you better do what I want. You know, <laughs> come on, man. But um, Daniel doesn't have the life that I have. He's been through so many other things. So much stuff that would say the exact opposite of what he's believing in. And yet he continues to believe it and respond out of it. He continues to have confidence in this God that he trusts, even though most of us would say he shouldn't at this point. That's what we see in this story. They get together, they pray, and God gives them the, the answer. God reveals the dream to Daniel, and, and right after this, they, he, he says this little prayer of praise. You can read through it on your own. But it's just this awesome thing that Daniel, he goes through so much, and yet still trusts in God, still believes in him, still responds, not, not out of hate or anger towards God or anyone else. All these people, he should hate them. He should respond, like, rudely, but no. He continues to say, please, continues to be respectful, continues to be confident in a God he trusts. That's what we'll see. And that sets the tone for the rest of his, his story. So as you, we go through this, you're going to see time and time again, he has another opportunity to just say, you know what, God, I don't trust you anymore. But he continues to trust in God. Also, uh, one other cool thing someone pointed out um, this last week, it was Cheryl Oliver. She was pointing out, it was really cool. But notice that he asked for time. It's just something so part of our culture that we want answers immediately. We want an answer now. God, give me my answer now. I want to know now. But Daniel asked for time. He's patient. He's calm. He's just like, you know what? Give me a day. I think that's just cool. Like, just trusting God and being patient with him is awesome. It's, it's such a cool thing that Daniel is this example for us. Having gone through all that he's gone through, that he still is calm and confident. That's, uh, that's really cool. A couple of things as we go through this series, I just want to give you a, a challenge or things. This isn't for you to, you don't have to do these things, it's all optional, but I would suggest if you were, as we go through this series, read through Daniel. I, as you saw, I, I'm, I'm not covering every verse, so just read through Daniel on your own, uh, and it's just an awesome story. See how, what sticks out to you, what, what uh, you feel is important. Uh, also, one of the, there's a really cool resource I, I mention it a lot. It's called the Bible Project. If you look it up, it's all free. You can just go on YouTube or their website and watch their videos. They're super good. Um, but they really show the whole story. And it's hard when you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, to see the whole picture, especially when we're going through the prophets because they're difficult to see. But the Bible Project really lays it out in a very cool visual way that helps you see, okay, oh, okay. So I'd recommend that. And then also this series is really derived from uh, Larry Osborne's Thriving in Babylon. So if you want to give that a check out, uh, you can do that as well. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.